So let's, uh, let's pray real quick and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this time that we can spend together. We thank you for giving us this day of rest, day of rest to uh, gather together. Um, we ask you to bless our time here today. We ask that uh, you would fill me with your spirit. Give me um, accurate words to speak in understanding your word. And give us all ears to, to better understand your word and, and see uh, the glory of Christ in your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, week one was uh, looking at the Garden of Eden. We looked at the arrangement that God had with Adam in the Garden of Eden, how he um, placed him there as God's representative on earth in a kingly, uh, kingly role, to have dominion, to um, be created in the image of God has this connotation of um, not just holiness and righteousness, but also representation and, and kingly dominion and rule. So. Um, Adam was to represent God on earth, and he placed him in his garden temple to work it and keep it. And we saw how that meant um, it wasn't just uh, with a hoe and, and garden gloves. It had a, a spiritual connotation of protecting this temple, the sacred space, uh, the way Israel, the, the Levites, protected the temple. And uh, if any unholy person entered into the temple, they were to be killed. Uh, Adam was to guard the, the garden temple in that way, and we saw how he failed to do that. When the serpent entered the garden, uh, he fail, failed to guard it and cast him out, and he, he chose to submit to Satan rather than to God, and he surrendered his kingdom over to Satan, and Satan became the ruler of this world um, and cast us into the, the misery we're in today. Uh, and then last week we saw the, the hope that God provided. Immediately after that fall in, in Genesis 3, he, he cursed the serpent, and in cursing the serpent gave us hope uh, that the seed of the woman, one particular seed of the woman, would, uh, would crush the serpent's head. Right? And this was a promise that one day a Redeemer would come to reverse this curse. So we looked at the New Covenant and how uh, Christ paralleled Adam as the second Adam. He came and accomplished what Adam failed to do. Right. Adam had this opportunity to enter into God's rest, this eternal life. He, he had a good life in the garden, but it wasn't eternal in the sense that he could lose it. Right. He, he could have earned the state of eternal rest where, where he could sin no more. And, and this is what Christ accomplished. Christ was obedient. Uh, he obeyed the Father perfectly. Uh, he went to the cross and bore our sins. And uh, through the great exchange, uh, the union, the marriage union with Christ, which is the new covenant. That's what we looked at last week. Uh, we share our sin with Christ, and Christ shares his righteousness with us. And through that, we enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, which is the new creation, the new heavens and the earth, um, where, where we will rest forever. So it won't just be a, a place in the sky, but heaven will come to earth and fill the whole earth. That um, was the original hope of creation. So Christ has earned that for, for us, that he's won that for us, and he has um, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Um, so that's the two parallels. Those are the two covenants that determine man's eternal state. Uh, the covenant with Adam, covenant with Christ, those are the two covenants that determine our eternal state. The rest of the covenants we're going to look at do not determine one's eternal state, but they are uh, related in various ways um, to the other, co other covenants. Um, so the covenant we're looking at today is the Noahic covenant. So we had, uh, had you read uh, as homework this last week, Genesis 6 through 9. So we're going to read little portions of it here and, and unpack that. Um, but the, um, the state in which we're left after the fall is uh, man, man lived a long time at this, at this point. Adam was around 900 years old, and, and most people were somewhere in that ballpark. It's actually pretty interesting to look at a chart. Um, mapping out from Genesis 5 and whatnot, the ages of everyone, and kind of see where they overlap and where they align. Um, Adam, was, Adam died about, about 120 years before Noah was born. So we kind of think of them as, as pretty far apart, but they actually weren't that far apart. Um, but if you live to be 900 years, and, and your heart is wicked, you can accomplish a lot of sin in that amount of time. 
And mankind working together for that many years can really accomplish a lot of sin and wickedness. So that's the, the world in which um, we find ourselves in Genesis 6. God says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word but has big connotations in the Bible. Right? Uh, we see it in Romans, we see it elsewhere. Man's sin, but God. Right? It's a, it's a hallmark of his grace. Uh, but God intervenes in his grace to find Noah, find favor in Noah, um, which meant he, he was gracious to Noah. And so because man's, um, uh, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, God sent a flood to wipe out mankind. Now, um, the question was, in the midst of this wickedness, was there, was, there any, was there any righteousness? Was there any hope? And we found from last week that there was hope, right? In that promise of the, uh, the crushing of the serpent, that there, there was hope that someone would, would come and reverse this curse. So during this time, men were saved by believing in the promised seed of the woman, a descendant of Noah. Adam died only 126 years before Noah was born. Many people were alive at the same time as Adam and Noah. They understood the fall and the promise of relief from the curse. So the point in highlighting that is, I'm sure Adam had a few things to say about his experience in the garden and afterwards, um, as he bore all these children and taught them. So there's a, a strong oral tradition during this time, uh, while all these people are alive, of, of the world in which they live, and the hope that is to come. So there's, in our Bible, you know, we just get a little bit here. These guys during this time didn't have the Bible written, but they had this oral tradition, and they actually had prophets as well. So Enoch was one of them. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So this is similar to uh, Elijah later, where he actually was translated, they call it, to heaven without dying. A very rare occurrence. Um, but, but it shows that there was hope of escaping this curse during this time. They weren't left in total darkness. Hebrews 11 comments on this. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay, so the point was, even during this dark time, uh, there were men who were saved, the same way we are today, saved through faith, they looked forward in, in a much darker, more veiled form. They looked forward to Christ, so they didn't understand the details. They looked forward to the hope of, of um, redemption. Uh, Jude says, it was also about these, talking about um, wicked sinners in a variety of ways, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So this is not an account that we have in the Bible. This actually comes from uh, the book of Enoch, which comes from kind of the intertestamental period before the New Testament. It's not an inspired book. Um, but it is said to be uh, a written, written version of an oral tradition that had been passed down for, for many, many, many years. 
Um, but what Jude records here is inspired. Uh, so we know at least that part of the book of Enoch is, is accurate, if not the whole thing. But it gives more light into what's going on during this time. And that's something to keep in mind. We get, a, again, a snippet, but there's a whole lot more happening in these people's lives than the few sentences that we get in the Bible. Um, God is speaking to them through various prophets and working in their lives and, and teaching them things. Then it says, when Lamech lived, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. From, uh, relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So somehow, Lamech knew that, the God, uh, that God had cursed the ground and that someone was going to come to reverse that curse. Right? They, knew, they knew these things and they placed their hope in them. And he named his son Noah uh, because he had hope in that. And the footnote there in your Bibles usually offers a translation note. It says, Noah sounds like the Hebrew for rest. Right? So his name, he named his son something that sounded like rest because that's what he was hoping for. That Noah was going to be the one, the seed of the woman who was going to bring us rest. So the point is this, this concept is in their minds. They're aware of it. They don't have all the details that we do, but they're aware of these um, of their need of redemption. They're aware of sin and the curse that's uh, throughout the world. Hebrews comments, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Right, so that's a key phrase there. The righteousness that comes by faith is what we looked at last week. It's Christ's righteousness. Right? It's not that Noah was a great guy and he had great faith and so God declared him righteous because his faith was, was, uh, met God's standards. You know, it's shorthand meaning he believed in the righteousness of another. Right? He believed in the righteousness of Christ to save him. That's what the, um, the righteousness that comes by faith refers to. So, uh, this brings us to the uh, idea of God's long-suffering, right? So, we saw that he was, he, he regretted that he had even made man because they had become so wicked throughout all the earth. Um, and there's, you get people living that long, they can have a lot of children. Uh, and there's some estimates that the population was actually quite extensive at this time. We can't know for sure, but... It's possible there were a billion people at this time, um, just the way that, that works out with the math. Um, but there was, there was a lot of wickedness. So God wanted to destroy everyone, but he didn't. Why wouldn't God destroy everyone? What, what kept him back from destroying everyone when the world had gotten that wicked? The promise that he made to Adam, right? God keeps his promises. He doesn't just kind of throw them out there. He made a promise, and he's a, uh, a promise keeper. He keeps his word. And so he did not wipe out everyone. He spared one family so that this, this promise could be fulfilled. But for the sake of his promise to Adam and Eve, God spared one family through whom the promised seed would be born. Thus, the promise of salvation in Christ is the foundation upon which God's long-suffering patience with the world is based. We begin to see the story of redemption unfold in the inner relatedness of the covenants. Right? So they all relate together, uh, to each other. They're not isolated. The, God made this covenant with Noah because he had promised Adam that the new covenant would come. Right, so there's this interconnectedness between them. They're not the same covenant, um, but they are tied together and very related. Um, and just recalling the, the promise in Genesis 3, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
And then um, Genesis 6 here, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Right? So he spared these, these people, this small family, for the sake of his promise that he made to Adam. Right? And he didn't, he didn't destroy and kill Adam and Eve immediately after the fall because of his grace as well. He, he withheld that, that judgment uh, for the sake of, of Christ. So this is a covenant with all of creation. Right? It wasn't just a covenant with that small family, that immediate, immediate family, but it's a covenant that God made with all of creation. Genesis 9 says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Who, who is included in that? <laughs> who is included in Noah and, and his offspring? All of us. Yeah. So we all come from Adam and Eve. And after everyone else is wiped out, we all come from Noah as well. So it's narrowed down. There's a little bit of parallel there with Adam. He's not in the same role as Adam, but there's some unique similarities there. Uh, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God established a covenant with Noah as the head of all his future descendants, that's all of us today, and every living creature on the earth to never again destroy all flesh through a worldwide flood, irrespective of man's obedience. Right? So this is an important point. This is a, a gracious covenant in many ways, especially in the fact that it does not depend on Noah keeping the covenant. It doesn't depend on us keeping the covenant. Um, if man becomes wicked again, and wickedness fills the earth, God is not going to uh, wipe us all out again. Right? So in spite of our sin, the earth will continue. The sign of the covenant. The rainbow is a sign of the Noahic covenant. It refers to a bow and arrow. So when he says, my bow will be in the clouds, the, the illusion there is like a bow and arrow, a, a weapon of war. Um, but this bow is not pointed at man as a threat. It's actually pointed up towards God. So this evokes the idea of what's called a, a self-maledictory oath. So it's a fancy phrase, but um, it refers to, we'll look at a passage here in a minute, um, when people made covenants, especially back then, it was a very, very serious matter. Oftentimes, it was a matter of life and death. It was an agreement to keep these terms, and if you don't, you could lose your life. So sometimes, sometimes covenants take that form, and some, some look at this and say, that may be what, what the bow is actually alluding to, right? There's no conditions on, on man's part. There's no threat against man. But God is, it's self-maledictory. He's, he's placing himself under this condition and saying, if I don't keep my covenant, I will be punished. Right? This weapon of war is, is pointed at God. That's one way to look at it. Um, but the point is that uh, God, is, God is held accountable for, uh, he holds himself accountable to keep his covenant here. It's not on us to um, maintain this covenant so that God won't destroy us. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. Right? This is a sign to God, not just to us. It says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the next passage, Jeremiah 34, verse 8, is an example of this kind of self-maledictory oath. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be for food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So does anybody have any idea what he's talking about? The, the parts of the calf that you pass between. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so she... Um, just for the sake of recording, she, she said that, the, uh, that it was a ceremony here where you cut, cut the animal in two and you separate its parts and then the parties of the covenant pass between those parts. And it's a, it's a solemn ceremony saying that uh, we're, bind, we're, we're binding one another together in agreement and if we break this agreement, um, what happened to this animal should happen to us. Right, so there, that, that's the vow, that's the symbolism, is that if I break this covenant, tear me in two like these anim, uh, this calf has been torn in two. And so God says, this is what you did. You performed this ceremony, you made this covenant with me, you passed through the parts, you swore an oath, and you broke it. So he's talking about it a time in Israel, uh, much later on, we'll get to later, but um, it's just an example there, and he says, I'm going to hold you to that, that covenant, and I'm going to punish you, and you're going to be killed. Um, so that's a little bit of background in how some covenants work and the point here is that God doesn't make us pass through the parts here uh, the obligation is all on him uh, a question here so it's common if you walk around Portland or different places today to see the rainbow used as a symbol right? as a flag, it's in some people's windows on some people's cars it's used as a sign uh, to symbolize sexual deviance from God's law. So the question is, do these sexual deviants use the sign of the rainbow ap appropriately? So we've got one no. Anybody else? No, they don't? Okay. Okay. Yeah, so they are definitely reappropriating it. There is a small sense in which it is relevant and, and um, I won't say accurate, but relevant to the way in which they're using it um, because it is a sign that God is not going to wipe out the world because of that kind of sin. Uh, it is a sign of God's, God's long-suffering towards that wickedness. Uh, it's a sign of his long-suffering towards our culture. Um, but as we'll see later, it's, it's, uh, it will come to an end at some point. I think it's a, 
because God punished their sin, you know, with fire and so you cannot say that uh, he keep it. Correct, yeah. So so he destroyed when that reach is so hard. Yes. So Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. 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 So he, um, he did punish. He punished Sodom and Gomorrah. He wiped them out. Uh, was that a violation of, did he break his covenant with Noah? No, because he didn't wipe out the whole world. But you, bring, but, but you make a very good point. Um, the promise here is that he won't destroy the whole world. That doesn't mean he won't at times judge certain areas for their wickedness. With a flood. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the and the connotation is also he he's not gonna until the end wipe us all out again with something else either. Um, yes, but those are those are good qualifications. Thank you. So uh, when God makes this covenant with Noah, I mentioned there's some similarities with Adam, right? We don't want to say he's a he's a second Adam. Because that's what the Bible refers to Christ as, right? That's reserved for Christ. But there are some similarities here. So Genesis 9.1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then going back to Genesis 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So to start with, what do you see as the similarities here? What, what's the same between these two? Um, uh, commands and, and uh, mandates that God gives to Noah and to Adam. Where do they overlap? Where are they the same? So dominion? Dominion, but how is that? Because Adam gave it to Satan already. Okay, so that's a, that's a great point. So where do you see dominion in, in the Genesis 9 text? Yeah, it's interesting. God says that he will, he will place the fear of man in, in the animals and deliver them over. Um, could be reading too much into it, but it is interesting that he doesn't refer to this as dominion. Right? Because we looked uh, in week one, dominion has this connotation of kingly rule. It's a royal reign, a dominion, and it's, it is, the, the language here is absent. So the animals, in a sense, yes, are, are delivered over to, um, to fear man, but that language of dominion is missing. What else is missing? Very, uh, very similar to dominion. What was the other word used in, uh, with Adam? What was he do, uh, to do to the earth? Subdue it. So what, did that, what was the connotation of that that we looked at in week one? Does anybody remember? What did that entail? Was that, you know, uh, planting lots of strawberries? Was it something more than that? Protect it, protect the garden. And, and the garden was what? It was a, it was a temple. Okay, so this was a, a very unique task that Adam had. He was to subdue the world in the sense of protecting the temple. And he was uh, to subdue, for example, Satan when he came in. 
and tempted and he brought sin into the temple, he was to subdue that and cast it out. Um, and I think it's noteworthy that when he gives this mandate to, to Noah, he does command him to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, then he leaves off and subdue it. He doesn't include that there. And I think that's because of what we looked at in week one, that that um, dominion, that kingly rule, and that task to subdue the world, it was all tied in with the garden. Right? That was a, a unique, it wasn't just something that you do in the world, it was tied to this garden, to God's presence, um, to protecting and spreading God's presence through the earth. And that's something that was lost. Right? Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden. They were, um, uh, an angel guarded their way so they couldn't come back in. They weren't allowed to come back in. And so, although Noah is given a, a similar task to fill the earth, it doesn't have the same, um, the exact same role as Adam because it's missing that garden temple element of it. Right? He's, um, which is, which is Im very important. Right? Noah is not um, working for that rest that Adam was. He doesn't have the hope of eternal life if he, if he obeys perfectly that Adam did. Um, so their, their tasks are, are slightly different. Does that make sense at all? It's interesting too because like, this is the, it almost seems like the final nail in the curse because now humans and all living creatures are enemies. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. if, if you, like, reading this, it, it brings to mind, like, before the flood, we're not enemies with the animals. Mm -hmm. But we are now. And, it's, you know, it, I, I think that's pretty fascinating that there was still this time where there was a slightly more idyllic world and, and this makes it very clear that the, the whole world has completely changed. Like our, our world now represents the full sin of what we have wrought with Adam disobedience. That, that's that's a really interesting thing. Absolutely. And it makes and of course it also makes sense too, like just technicalities of like how would how would Noah get all these animals on the ark? Well if the animals are their friends then and they're not afraid of us, so it would be much easier to gather them and bring them to the ark mm -hmm. than it would have been afterwards, mm. where we are, they're afraid of us. I hadn't thought about that, yeah. But I just think that that's, that's I mean, I hadn't thought of it until you read that verse, and I was like, mm -hmm. wow, that changes everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, for the sake of re recording, I, I forgot to mention Mary, right? Yeah. Uh, Mary's comment, She when she was talking about... Um, it seems like uh, God gave Noah dominion, but she, her comment was, but how could, how could he do that if he had, um, Adam had surrendered that to Satan? Right? So that was a great observation, a great comment there, and, and important there. That's, that's part of my point here in, in that, um, that God did not give Noah the same task to subdue and have dominion because Adam had surrendered that dominion to Satan. Um, this is a much different world. There's, there's similar tasks in that you get married, you have children, um, you work the land, you work for food, you do all these things, but it's um, in a much different context where Satan now rules the world, that we are not um, ruling it in the sense that Adam was supposed to. So an, uh, an important observation from that is when we are saved in Christ, we're not put back into the Garden of Eden to fulfill Adam's task, to fulfill his mission. We remain under the Noahic covenant when we are saved in Christ, which is a modified mandate for life in a fallen world. As Christians, our cultural work is important, but it's not temple work. It's not the same thing as what Adam was doing. So in this sense, when we are saved, we become dual citizens. Right? We continue to live in this fallen world under the Noahic covenant and we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, uh, the new creation. So we become dual citizens and, and pilgrims on this earth. 
So there's a passage um, in Jeremiah talking about when the Israelites were in exile. Um, they, were, they were away from the promised land. That has some implications for us today, I think. It, it helps frame things. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Right? So we're not in the exact same situation as Israel in exile, but there is some parallels in the sense that they were not at home in their promised land. We are not yet at home in our promised land. And so we are living here in a mixed world, um, in the midst of, of unbelievers who are in Adam. Uh, but that's the, that's the point of the Noahic covenant, is that we live together with them on this earth until Christ returns. And so the, the point of this covenant is what we can call uh, common preservation. Right, the Noahic covenant was a covenant of common preservation, uh, for elect and reprobate man to live together. It provides a stable backdrop for the unfolding history of redemption and will continue until Christ returns in final judgment. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And this is alluded to in, in, later in Jeremiah uh, 33. says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also will my covenant with David my servant, uh, servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priest who ministered to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, have you not observed that these people, what these people are saying? The Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose. Thus they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. So we'll look later at those details surrounding Israel and the comments there, but the point here is, is that God is appealing back to this, this covenant with Noah, referring to it as this covenant with day and night. Right? He promised that they would continue uh, every day in a regular pattern, and that would not be disrupted. Uh, Matthew 5.43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right, so that, that goes back to this covenant with Noah, that uh, he causes all of these good blessings to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Right? The just and the unjust are together uh, parties of this Noahic covenant. We all receive the benefits of it. So another part of uh, this covenant that we see is the concept of retributive justice. Right? This, this um, goes back to before this covenant, before the flood, how um, wicked man was, only thinking evil continually. 
And um, in response to the violent nature of life before the fall, God states that men must administer retributive justice for violence done to image bearers. Genesis 9.5 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So there is still a, a protected status for men, for mankind in this world, um, because we were created in the image of God. Um, there is still a significance to that. Uh, and punishment will come for those who uh, destroy that image. Uh, some later passages kind of elaborate upon this concept of um, life for life. Whoever takes a human life, so this is part of Mosaic law here. Uh, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that their child come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his neighbor, his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. You shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Right? So this is very clearly laying out the concept of retributive justice. It's, it's referred to as in Latin, lex talionis, or eye for an eye. Right, and this is the standard of justice in the world today. This is the punishment that is due in the world um, for, for crime, for violence done to other image bearers. As man carries out his renewed command to fill the earth, he organizes himself into various communities. Families, tribes, cities, nations. The godly goal of these various organizations, what we can call governments, is to fulfill the duties of life under the Noahic covenant, including procreation, flourishing, and justice, and is to be carried out in wisdom depending upon um, the circumstances. So it's kind of a broad comment that gets us into all kinds of rabbit trails there, but but the point is that uh, the Noahic Covenant really uh, should inform our, our understanding of the role of civil government uh, in a fallen world. And if you look at um, you know, something like abortion, right, that, that epitomizes the opposite of the Noahic Covenant. Right? It, it is um, killing an image bearer, it is murder. It's also the opposite of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Right? It's, it's, it's an affront to God even in this gracious Noahic covenant. So this uh, judgment that God sent onto the world in this flood, it was a foreshadow of the final judgment. The flood was a type of the final judgment. Luke 17 says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. 
But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in, in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that day there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Right, so the idea here is that uh, uh, it's a type of the final judgment. Just as uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were judged, just as the world was judged in a flood, so at the end of the age, when Christ returns, the world will be judged. And it says that it, it will be similar in that people will not be paying attention. They will not be heeding the warning. Right? Noah warned his, his fellow men for uh, a long, long time that this thing called rain and a flood was going to come. Right? And they ignored him. They continued eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And they just continued their life as if God did not exist and there was no threat of judgment. And he said when Christ returns, it will be the same. Right? People will be ignoring this warning of the return of Christ and judgment. And it will come upon us quickly. Second uh, Peter 2 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even de denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow... Um, follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he had heard, uh, that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Right? So there is still much that we can draw from the lesson of the flood that's still very uh, relevant to today. There's... Um, um, an artist, I can't remember what his name is now. Um, I, I forget the style of his drawings, but they're very stark black and white, um, almost kind of like wood wood um, engravings, but but not quite. And anyways, he's got one of uh, he's got two two parallel images. One is uh, Noah building the ark before the flood, and he's got you know this giant saw, and he's just you know working away. Um, building a, this giant boat, and that's what he's dedicating his time to and his energy to, is, is to prepare for this, this coming judgment. And then the next image is after the flood and the waters have recited, and you just see all the corpses, all these dead bodies littered all over the, and the, and the ark, you know, stuck in the, in the mountaintop there with the sun coming through. Um, and it's just a very um, poignant image to help us think about life here in this world. Right, that we should be living our lives here on earth in preparation for the return of Christ, as Noah was living every day, working uh, to prepare that ark to save him, himself from the coming flood and the coming judgment. Right, so we should be 
laboring each day, not to save ourselves because we have been saved and redeemed in Christ, but living in light of his return, um, anticipating its return, um, proclaiming the gospel, sharing the good news, um, all of those things. Uh, Noah's ark was also a type of our salvation in Christ. So when I say type, does anybody know what a type means? Like an image, yeah, absolutely. And so in this context, it's, a, it's, a, it's an image that God has set up in his providence in history, something that happened before Christ in history that he ordained, uh, and it's to represent something of Christ in the new, new creation uh, by way of analogy. Uh, and also escalation. It's great. And then, so um, we'll, as we look through these other covenants, we'll start to see more and more types, more and more images and foreshadows of Christ. And so uh, the ark was one of those. First Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. And this can actually be a, a, a bit of a difficult passage, but... Um, baptism here is, is um, understood as part of our profession of faith in Christ, right? So it's, it's not the sprinkling of water that saves, Peter's saying, but it's, your, it's uh, your union with Christ through faith that now saves you. And so uh, Christ is our ark, right? As, as Noah was saved in the ark that he built from the flood, uh, we are saved in Christ. We are protected from that, that judgment that will come if we are found in Christ. Um, as we talked about last week. Um, so that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, we've got a little bit of time here. Does anybody have any questions from anything we went over here, anything you did in your reading this week, anything you've ever come across that uh, I didn't touch on that you've got questions about related to any of this? Yeah, that's fine. We've got uh, rabbit holes are fine once we're through the through the stuff. Rabbit holes are good. Uh huh. Um, Genesis nine when he says every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So does that mean they weren't eating all the animals before, but now they are? And then, but aren't there still at this point in time rules of what they that are clean and unclean that we talk about that they shouldn't be eating? Yeah, so it's a good question. In the garden, he says he gives all the plants as food for them. Right? He doesn't mention the animals. Um, I think a safe deduction from that is that they weren't eating the animals. Uh, there was also the idea there wasn't death before the, before the fall. Um, and uh, so, yes, it does seem like, yes, this is now something that they can eat. Um, and it, it, it's also interesting, I didn't get into it, but the, the flood totally changed the kind of structure of the whole world's climate and everything. Um, before that, it, it was, you know, it hadn't yet rained, and there was an expanse of water above, and it was, it was kind of like a, a, a greenhouse. Um, and di different botanists and things have seen that you can actually build a greenhouse and put um, like a layer of water on top of the greenhouse so that the sun is filtered through a thick layer of water and it completely changes what goes on inside of the garden. It's um, inside of the, of the greenhouse. Plants flourish much more, much more abundantly, right? The, the sun's rays are not um, killing all the, what we know now is the, the, the um, bacteria and things like that that grow. And so plants are just a lot healthier and bigger and more vigorous. Um, because this light is filtered, and we look at uh, man, uh, you know, lived 900 years before 
Um, it, was, it was just a very different environment. And so our bodies were different, the climate was different, and probably diet needs were a little bit different. And uh, our need for animal protein you know, could very much be uh, a reflection of this change environment and change bodies and, and everything. So um, there's, there's something to it. The other part of your question, oh, the clean and unclean. Yeah, um, so this is where it gets a little bit tricky through some of the stuff in Genesis because what we have revealed here is so sparse, right? It says um, that Adam, uh, sorry, that, that Noah took clean and unclean animals uh, onto the ark and, and he sacrificed, uh, he took extra of the clean animals uh, and then he sacrificed those. It doesn't say how he knew what those were. It doesn't say how he knew what the clean and unclean animals were. Clearly God revealed that to him at some point. Um, and it doesn't necessarily say whether they were restricted from eating the way that Israel was later restricted from eating. Uh, I would suggest that they didn't have the same food laws because when those food laws came to, to Israel, they were unique from all of the other nations, and it was something that set them apart as unique, and that was part of the, part of the reason for it. Um, but there was an understanding of what was clean and clean, at least for the purpose of sacrifice. Um, so, again, it's hard to read between the lines. I probably wouldn't say that they were restricted from eating in the same way that Israel was later, but there was yes, some identification of, of what was considered clean and unclean. Uh, and also, it's, it, it's interesting to keep in mind, so what we have in Genesis was actually part of what they call the Pentateuch, the, um, uh, the Torah, the first five books. They were all written at the same time. So it's not like the Genesis account was written by Adam, right, and then passed down. It was written by Moses. So God revealed these things to Moses. And so um, the point is that all of this was given together with the rest of the, the books of Moses. And so when it says clean and unclean, um, that's written for Israel as an audience. Maybe they referred to it as something else back in Noah's day. But Moses calls it clean and unclean because they have the rest of Mosaic law and they know what that means. So there's a lot of that you keep in mind as you're reading Genesis, keeping in mind like this is written for Israel in that context. So, um, any other? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, God had to have told him what it was. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Anybody else? Any other rabbit trails? You said you got a couple. Um, all the verses about, like, eye for an eye, two for two, and being put to death, like, about, you know, is that basically God saying, yeah, the death penalty is... Because I've heard both sides from mm -hmm. a Christian perspective, yeah. like, Yes, this is why we should be for the death penalty. No, this is why we should be. And is this strictly for the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. And now that Jesus came, these things no longer apply. Or I don't know. Yeah. So the question was, how do we think about the death penalty as Christians? Right? How does how does that apply today? Is that just an Old Testament thing? Um, did the coming of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ change that in some way? So there are. Um, there are a lot of layers to that question, um, so I'll try, to, I'll try to hit all of them if I can. Uh, the, the other passages that I read were from Mosaic Law from the Old Covenant, so we'll get to that later. Um, that covenant has ended, right, and it was for Israel uniquely. So we're not under the Old Covenant, we're not under Mosaic Law. But they do seem to be expounding upon and elaborating what God said to Noah. Right? So they're, they're, they're elaborating upon and giving more detail what it means life for life. And as we've seen today, we are still under the Noahic covenant. Right? So that command in Genesis 9, that murderers should be put to death, is still applicable today. Right? Even though it was given in the Old Testament. And so that's part of, part of what we want to learn in this class is that... Um, 
it's, it's more nuanced and complicated than just Old Testament, New Testament. Right? As we look at the Old Testament, there's a lot of different uh, things going on, a lot of different covenants that relate to us in different ways. There's this covenant with Adam in the garden. There's this covenant with Noah, uh, with Abraham and David. And, and so uh, it's not all just one thing that uh, we put aside. Some of it has expired, gone away. Some of it hasn't. Some of it continues. Um, and so I would say the command God gave to Noah, insofar as we're still under this Noahic covenant, it still applies uh, today, right? That murderers uh, should be put to death. Um, and then those passages from the Old Covenant kind of elaborate and, and give us greater clarity on that. The other question is, though, is how does that relate to the coming of Christ, right? And mercy and grace and forgiveness and turning the other cheek. So... This gets a little more complicated, but um, the, when I mentioned there at the beginning that as man uh, became fruitful and multiplied, right, he, he creates, man creates different organizations. So it's a family first, a family unit, and then it's tribes, and then cities, and it kind of grows from there. But this, this command um, to put the murderer to death um, it, it's not just something given to like a nation or a president or something like that. It actually is given to individuals. And as, as life was unfolding, it was individuals and families' responsibilities to carry out this task. And so if you look in, in the history of Israel, in these tribal cultures, you have what's called the next of kin. Right? That's basically your, your legal representative in your family if something were to happen to you. Uh, so your brother, for example, or somebody like that. And uh, if somebody was to die, their brother, their next of kin, they were obligated to become the, they were the avenger of blood. And it wasn't that they called the police and the police came and dealt with it. They were the ones responsible for carrying out this command um, um, to execute uh, the murderer. Now, the reason I mention that <clears throat> is because if you look at it in, in that light, there's a more personal individual uh, element to it uh, where forgiveness makes a little bit more sense and can play more of a role because it is that, that personal uh, dynamic relationship where it is the family that is acting on behalf of the deceased and they're the offended party and if, if the murderer were to come, to come to them in repentance and ask for forgiveness um, in that context it might make sense to extend forgiveness because of the forgiveness we found in Christ. But in a context where that kind of dynamic has been removed and that kind of interpersonal type of vengeance like, is, is, is foreign from our minds, um, we see these as crimes against the state. Um, and in that context, it's a little more difficult to say, well, the state should reflect the kingdom of Christ, right? And so everybody should be forgiven. Well, in that context, that becomes a little more difficult. Um, what's the state to do? Is there no crime any longer? Um, and so, uh, generally speaking, in more abstract, civil governments should reflect the Noahic Covenant. And then in, in interpersonal dynamics there, to the extent that individual uh, offenses are, uh, occur, we want to reflect the, the love that Christ has shown us and, and be willing to forgive those who ask, ask for forgiveness. So kind of a nuanced answer, but that's how I tend to look at that. Any other uh, questions, comments, observations, rabbit trails? Um, clearly, Jude had read it. And he thought it was good, and, and Peter as well quotes, quotes from it. Um, he read it, he thought it, was, it wasn't bad, something to be avoided. Um, but we do have to be careful because it's not inspired. And so we don't know which parts of it are true and which parts are not. So if you go into it with that, it, it can be helpful. There's clearly some true things in it. Um, but we want to make sure that if there's anything else in there that we don't find in Scripture, we take it with a big, big grain of salt and say maybe, maybe not. Um, 
but yeah, it's probably worth reading. Yeah. The historical books. Are there any historical books that we should read and maybe get some background, better understanding of what what they were going through? In terms of Noah and in in his day. Yes, uh, so you're, you're talking about um, when God came and revealed things to Israel in, in that kind of writing. Um, yeah, I mean, Genesis is going to be the, the, the main record of all of that, yeah. Um, the book of Job is, there's kind of a question mark as to when that occurred. Uh, a lot of people place it maybe around Abraham's time or, or even before. So that could be another one, um, but those would be kind of the two. But, I mean, like, um, um, it's from the history point of the Bible, people writing about the history oh, right, right. of Israel. Yeah, it's, it's tough because, um, because the records are so limited for this period of time. So Israel comes, I think it's a couple thousand years after this point, right? So this is way, way before that. There are... Um, a lot of it comes to us in, in myth um, or, or kind of different traditions of cultures. You look at a lot of them and they have um, uh, st uh, stories in their tradition of great floods coming in and, and God being angry and, and these different things like that. So I can't remember what those are called. I can look them up and, and email you. Um, um, Gilgamesh, I think. Uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, I think was one of the names. There's a few, few like that. Um, that, that yeah, you can read accounts, but they're they're ancient, you know, uh, ancient stuff. They they do give an interesting picture for sure. It's usually from from that perspective, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, and there's we didn't get into it here, but you've got um, in in Genesis six it talks about um, the sons of God coming in and to the daughters of men and finding them uh, to be attractive as as wives and. That's that's a that's a fascinating section there. There's different interpretations, but at at the very least, it it really highlights the wickedness, um, the extent of the wickedness, and and uh, the violence and and everything that was going on there. Um, so that would be another section to look at. But I'll see if I can dig up some other sources and email it out. Okay, thank you. Yeah. You bet. All right. Thank you guys. What's up? Uh, for next week. So it's a little bit of a bigger section. Genesis 12 to 22, if you've got time. We'll be looking at um, the covenant with Abraham, which Stephen in Acts 7 refers to as the covenant of circumcision. So thanks for being here. Come with lots of questions next week, and uh, we will dig in. <laughs>